stay hungry, stay foolish. Welcome to the very first in-person interview for the Innovation Show in the new studio. It is a great pleasure to welcome one of the world's foremost experts on workplace courage, the author of Choosing Courage, this book here behind me on the new Innovation Show bookshelf in the new offices here in the iconic offices in Dublin. And it's a great pleasure to welcome friend of the Innovation Show, Jim Dieter. Jim, welcome to the show. Give me some skin, brother. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is so good to be with you, and what a privilege to be the first guy in the new studio. It's great to have you, and we've had all the problems that you have with having a new studio, mics not working, etc. But it's an absolute pleasure to have you, Jim. I just heard Jim deliver a wonderful workshop with CBRE, and I thought rather than because we've covered the book before, Jim, I thought rather than cover the book, we'd talk about some of the things that came up there. One of the things I thought was so interesting was many of the listeners to this show, many of our audience, you, myself, we're readers, we're voracious readers, we love to educate ourselves, etc. But if you were to ask many people, how do you think you would go about fixing culture within an organization, many people would find themselves dumbfounded. And that's often what happens, isn't it? Because it's easy to know the knowledge, it's easy to read the books. Yeah. But bringing it into action is such a different thing. And I thought maybe that'd be an interesting way to start and to ask our audience as well, what would you do if you found a cohort of your organization were afraid to speak up about a wide variety of issues? What would you do? And that was the question Jim asked today. So I thought that would be a way to tee it up, Jim, and let's take it from there. That's great. Yeah, so as I said today, uh, it's a it's a question and a set of answers uh, I get a lot. You know, people will say if I say, well, how would you you know change a problem with the percentage of people who speak up or feel safe in the organization? People will say uh, you have to change the culture. You have to fix the culture. Uh, and I say, well, okay, I've been studying this a long time, um, but I've never sort of met a culture or seen a culture or shook a culture's hand. So how would I change a culture? And if you push far enough, eventually, what you get people to realize is that. While we sort of know culture is something bigger than any individual one of us or individual sort of set of behaviors or interactions, in the end, uh, you can't change a culture unless you change the way humans treat each other and the way the systems or structures operate. So we can say we want a culture that is more inclusive, but unless we change uh, who gets invited to the key meetings, who gets a real vote, we're not going to change the culture of inclusion. We can talk all day about culture. You'll only change it when we change literally things like who's in the key meetings, who do we hire, who do we promote, and those are all systems and structures and policies. And similarly, we can talk about, well, we need a culture of respect or we need a culture uh, where it's safer. We need a culture where there's more trust. And I'd say, yes, you need all of those things. And you can't get any of them by saying it. What would you do? Well, then we can start to finally dig a little deeper and say, the only way you get any of those things is you actually change what leaders, what people from top to bottom of the organization do day in, day out. How do they sort of ask for input? How do they respond when they get it? Um, on what turf do they meet people to have those conversations? How do they reward and not punish people? Again, you end up realizing 
There is no such thing as a culture fix that isn't about the nuts and bolts of systems and processes and about changing people's behavior. And so, you know, often uh, I think when organizations talk about any of these tough issues, we all know the buzzwords, right? You've got hundreds of books and, and most folks in organizations have read at least, you know, 10 or 20 books on leadership and management. They know the right words, uh, but the words in the end don't make the organization a different place to be. So interesting because when you were talking about that, I was like, I was thinking about innovation and creating a culture for innovation within an organization. And once again, all the literature shows you don't start with trying to boil the ocean. You don't start with this big fix. You start with a small win that might then get more attention, more leadership focus, and then you grow it from that army of the willing, if you will. And it's the same thing with culture or with courage. I found today, it's the same thing. You start with those small things and you hopefully all the small bits will add together and become the ocean eventually. Yeah, it's so true. You know, I was talking to my wife just the other day about, yeah, we've both been reading a bunch of books on, you know, uh, health in, in middle age or how to age skillfully or um, how to eat the right stuff or how to sleep better. You know, all the things everybody's talking about nowadays. And I said, you know, it's, on the one hand, it's it's just incredibly powerful that you now have all sorts of medical doctors and other kinds of experts writing these books for sort of lay folks like us. Uh, and and I learned so much. And then I inevitably, though, find that when I get to the last chapter or two, I find myself disappointed because they go from, you know, this incredible knowledge base about what to eat or the importance of X, Y, Z in sleep. And then they get to the sort of what to do part of the book and they get it you know more or less all wrong. Uh, you know, they say, here's six big things you should do next week. And then the following week, here's six more new things. And what we know about human beings is, you know, habits, if you read the literature on habits or on individual change that gets sustained, what we know is at most the average human being can change one behavior over many months, right? Maybe over a year. And so I, I think it's, yeah, it's so true, right? You, you don't change the broader cultural issue the broader perception in the organization by trying to change a hundred things at once. You do something that's small and easy and actually manageable and you build on that. Again, reminds me so much of my background as a sports player. One thing I, I thought of when I was listening to you was you not only need to train those things and add them in incrementally. So I, I might start my diet, having a good diet goes well with, doing weight training, for example, but then I go, actually, I need to sleep because I'm tired, more tired. So you get this keystone habit changing many other things. But then I thought about what you were talking about, your beautiful term about the courage ladder. And I was kind of going, you need to take your first step onto that courage ladder, but having in mind, what's the one change you can make? And then hopefully across a portfolio of mindsets across an organization, everybody will make a different change. Meanwhile, taking a step onto the courage ladder. So I'm going to put that thought there. And then the other thing I thought about and why I mentioned the sports thing, it also goes to the army where you train people under duress for a very specific reason. So when they are under duress, they're able to manage it. So, you know, in drills in NFL or rugby, as I played, it's like, get the guys tired and then get them to make decisions because that's actually what's going to happen when the stakes are high. 
And this talks to a lot of where your work on courage has got to today. So there's a lot in there. One was the training under duress and where you're doing this magnificent work in the lab. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is the courage ladder, because the courage ladder is so useful for anybody in an audience, something that they can take home and put into action straight away. Yeah, I mean, so if we start, you know, with those two things in reverse, the idea of the courage ladder is, is of course, to say, you know, like rungs on a ladder, uh, it's much easier to take, you know, the first step onto a ladder than it is to, you know, get up a story or two on a ladder. And the same is true with things we're afraid to do at work or that we think there's a lot of risk at work, but we know are important. And so the courage ladder is really just a, a visualization of the idea of, you know, you don't want to start trying to build that courage muscle with the hardest, scariest thing you can think of, both because you'll just avoid doing it and you'd fail uh, if you did do it. So, you know, you, you come up with something that still makes you feel a little bit, you know, uh, sick in the stomach, a bit anxious, but that you know you could do, like maybe having that conversation with a coworker you've been avoiding or finishing the performance review on somebody you really like, but, you know, he or she really hasn't had a great year. And you, you put that on the lower rung of the ladder because that's actually a doable step. You know, you'll actually have a shot at carrying that out. And I think, you know, that goes to the idea of training. Um, yeah, if you look in military contexts, um, in many other sort of life or death training contexts, you know, they have various models, right? Like, you know, sweat like hell in practice so you don't bleed in game time, right? And the essence of all that is to say it's much better it's much better to put the work in up front uh, before the biggest moments. And I think the same thing applies here. You know, we, so in, in the lab, the idea is unless you actually practice, you know, doing the things that will help you sort of physiologically, like learning how to take, you know, a few deep breaths or learning how to do other things to change your heart rate, uh, unless you actually do those when you're scared, you know, it sounds so obvious to say, right, but you can't... Uh, you, you can't actually use your parasympathetic nervous system to calm down, right, your sympathetic reaction unless your sympathetic nervous system is engaged or too high in the first place, right? And so whether we're talking about controlling breath or, you know, calming that inner dialogue or just actually saying what you later realized was so brilliant but you couldn't come up with in the moment, you're only really practicing that when you're under a bit of stress. And so I think you know, far too much. Uh, I, I was, I've been fortunate to be around uh, many people who are really brilliant, thoughtful leader developers. And, and one of them is a professor uh, emeritus now at, at HBS uh, named Mike Beer. And he wrote an article and he talked about what he called the great training robbery. Uh, you know, and, it, and the essence of the argument is that there are you know, several hundred billion dollars spent a year on leadership development. And for 90-some percent of it, we really have no evidence that it produces behavioral change. And to, to the point we're talking about here, I think so much of that is because too much training is done under sort of, you know, cognitively cool, calm conditions that don't mirror what people have to then sort of live in when they would do it. And again, to go back to your sort of sports or military analogy, you know, we know um, that in those contexts where performance is what ultimately matters. You know, the army in the U.S., for example, has sort of a be, no, do model. Um, the knowing is, you know, yeah. the knowing is what we get out of a book, mm -hmm. right? And frankly, the knowing is what we get out of the vast majority of leadership development programs. 
but whether you could sort of be successful right out there on the battlefield or in your own sort of work environment, it's not just about what you have in your head. It's not about the know, it's about the do. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, until the field of leadership development really moves itself toward truly experiential learning that mirrors the conditions of performance, which includes stress at work for most people, we're just not going to get where we need to be. It's so synonymous with actually innovation development, leadership development, like their encouraged development. They're the same thing. Like they all start with this change that's like building a muscle. You say, for example, today in the talk with CBRE, you don't just go out and run a marathon. You have to build a muscle. You have to go and start the first day, small steps, you know, onto your marathon, your ability muscle or your ability ladder, if you want to call it that way. And the same thing here. So I thought one of the things we would do to our audience is give the audience a challenge, which would be how to step onto that courage ladder and how to start. And I'll, I'll take the lead here because I actually, from our last conversation, when we talked about uh, choosing courage, I went, hey, what am I going to do about this? And I, I have shared this with the audience a few times, but they probably don't know where it came from, which is I st- said to myself, okay, those people in life, and we all have them, who you would see them coming and you'd cross the road because you, in Ireland, we'd say we have a bit of niggle, which is like this, your amygdala twitches and it's like, going, ooh, I don't really want to talk to that person. It might be somebody from school or it might be somebody from an organization you worked in who said something that you didn't agree with in a meeting, whatever it might be, just the reason for your amygdala to flash. So I don't have much of those people in life, but I said to myself, wouldn't it be great if I had none? So I started to invite them for a coffee or a breakfast and sit down with them and no agenda other than to wish them well and to go, was there the moment in time in my life where I hadn't developed myself enough and I'll take it now and kind of go, okay, there's, there's nothing there. And what I found most remarkable, Jim, was they had no issue with me at all. Or most of the time they didn't, or maybe have been an event that we discussed, but it, it just was like poof into the ether. And I, I forgot about it, wished them well, you know, don't particularly want to meet them again, <laughs> yeah. but it's out of my head. It's out of my life. It's, it's not a toxin inside me anymore. And that was because of the courage ladder. So I thought it'd be great to offer that as a gift to our audience as well, to offer them, how do they get onto the courage ladder? What does it mean? And first steps and what they can expect. Yeah. So, you know, I talk in, in choosing courage itself about, uh, you know, how you can, for example, take the workplace courage X index. This is a, a set of 35 behaviors, a scale I, I built based on 35 behaviors that people in all different roles and levels and all kinds of organizations around the world had said require some level of courage. And so you can go on there and you can rate, you know, how courageous is this for me? Uh, how often does it happen? And, you could look at those results and that would clearly give you some areas in your work life where you're avoiding doing some things you think are important. And and then you could you know use those to build a ladder and you could choose something toward the bottom and really get started. I'll give you a whole different, this is something you and I haven't talked about. Uh, a different way to think about this came to me recently. I was, I was listening to something by Dave Isay. He's the founder of StoryCorps. Um, and for those who don't know, StoryCorps um, was founded with a pretty simple idea, which is, you know, what if the guy said, you know, what, what if I created a studio and 
put it someplace like, you know, Times Square in New York City and, and just allowed people to come in, uh, into a, you know, a secure private studio and to just have a conversation. And that conversation would exist forever. You know, so perhaps it could be you talking to your father and, you know, your kids and grandkids and their kids, you know, a hundred years from now would be able to see this conversation. And so StoryCorps, it became a massive success. You know, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of these conversations recorded for posterity now. And uh, Dave Isay was explaining how they had engaged this uh, sort of geriatric doctor, uh, an expert who spends a lot of time with very elderly people. And they engaged him to sort of see what he could learn about these conversations in StoryCorps that happened with fairly senior folks. And and his conclusion was, and he writes about this in a book, that there are four really important things um, to say before you die or before someone you care about die. And they are, thank you. I love you. I forgive you. Can you forgive me? And he said, you know, these really form the core mm. of the most powerful final conversations. And And I got to thinking, you know, yeah, that's true. But why would we... Why would we either think that that's important only for the most important people in our life or like when we hit that like, oh boy, I'm going to die <laughs> moment, right? Why wait? Yeah. Uh, because as you pointed to, you know, we when we don't thank someone or let somebody know we love them or ask for forgiveness or offer forgiveness, we're, we're not really harming them or mm-hmm. primarily them. It's us that's carrying around that burden, right? Whether it's the pain, whether it's the anger, um, you know, I forget who said it now, but, you know, this notion that you will never really be free to fly to be your best self um, as long as you're holding somebody else down because your foot's got to be down there on the ground. And so I think, you know, one challenge I would offer for listeners is, look, if you don't like the language of workplace courage or, you know, you don't like making it seem so instrumental, forget about that. Mm. I would say just think about you know, the bottom of your courage ladder or my challenge to you is just ask yourself this question. Who do I need to thank that I haven't thanked? Who do I need to let know I love or care deeply about that I haven't? Mm -hmm. Who do I need to forgive and just let them know I'm done with that? Mm -hmm. Or who do I need to ask forgiveness from? And, And the truth is, sadly, right, in the difficult relationships, those any of those four actions can can be pretty scary yeah and so they're great they're great first steps there was a couple of sayings that helped me as well in that in that whole period and it happened to me and i wrote about it as you know in my own book i said that there's a saying that uh, if you get bitten by a snake it's not the snake bite that bites bite it kills you it's not removing the poison and there that's the forgiveness part or even forgiving yourself in some cases and then the other one was not saying thank you to somebody is like wrapping a present and never giving it. <laughs> and there, I just love those mental models to help us as human beings because all this stuff on innovation, all the stuff on leadership, on courage, whatever it might be, starts with self. And I think that's those little things you, you can make the changes with help. But then one of the things dawned on me today, and we didn't talk about it today earlier on during your workshop was, a lot of this is programmed into us at a very young age. It's like, oh no, you don't speak up or, you know, 
there's there's a lot of uh, research on children stop asking questions after a serious you know second grade or something the amount of questions children stop you know why is the sky blue great questions they stop doing them so that's one thing and then i was going okay well what can we do about that at a young age one thing i read and i love your your thoughts on this one because i was like imagine you could get ahead of all this and start to help children at a younger age to go you have a voice you need to be heard. Society needs to change. Things were different in the past. They're different today. You should speak up. One of the things I try to do with my children is get them to speak up. And in the car, rather than going, Jim, what did you learn in school today? Because they always say nothing. <laughs> you have two daughters. You know what it's like. Yeah. Nothing. And you're kind of going, great, uh, great investment in your ed education today. Yeah. Yeah. But now it's like, what was there anything you disagreed with and the first time i asked my younger son he's like what do you mean i was like is that the teacher said that you thought was wrong or that didn't make sense to you and he's like going why did you ask me that and i was like kind of going because you could be right and, he, and i just saw him thinking and then it manifested later on in a, a game we we're playing in a, an escape room and he went against the group he's the youngest so there's me my wife my older son and him and he went against the group and he goes, what if we do it this way? And I was like, that's what I was talking about. Well done, buddy. And, and I was like, those little interventions at such a young age can have such a, a profound impact later on that we don't even know how they're going to they're gonna happen. So I, I thought that would be a lovely way to kind of close today's show and talk about how can we get ahead of it in the future and change culture going forward. Yeah, it's it's a it's a lovely question because I think it's true and it's something that as a you know a graduate business school professor as somebody who works you know mostly with adults um, I, I more and more realize that sometimes I think I'm too late right you know mm -hmm. that by the time people are 25 or 35 or 55 they have so many mental models that are so well established that if that if we could just stop the formation of some of those problematic models, we'd be getting a lot further. Um, and, and I so resonate with, you know, I, I was smiling because when our kids were uh, growing up, we had the same sort of idea about, you know, having these conversations at the dinner table. And uh, we, we would get also the nothing answer, you know, <laughs> tell us about school and nothing. Would you learn nothing? And so we actually realized part of it is you got to change the question. Mm -hmm. um, so we changed it to, we, it actually stopped being a question and we changed it to tell us three things you learned in school today. <laughs> no dessert until then. Uh, and reward. Yeah. Change rewards. And that's right. And I think, you know, it reminds me of, you know, this notion of dessert, right? It reminds me of Stanley Milgram, right? The great yeah. psychologist that, that did the deference to authority studies, the shock studies, mm -hmm. Uh, which, you know, I'm guessing many listeners, you know, heard about in some psychology class or read about. Uh, he talked about, you know, his his conclusion, it's a kind of sad conclusion. It's a very sad conclusion was that in any medium sized town in America, um, you could have found enough people to, you know, man the prison camps in Nazi Germany. And his conclusion about that had a lot to do with childhood. And he said, what we fail to recognize is that every day. Um, we give thousands of commands, if not thousands, hundreds of commands to our children um, that we don't even realize we're giving, right? So 
we say, you know, at dinner, eat your peas. And then we say, go put your pajamas on. We say, turn out your light. And the truth is every one of those is a command to do something. But each of those commands also has a secondary unspoken thing, which is um, do what you're told. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as a parent, inevitably, we tell our children what to do many times a day. And their teachers do, and their religious authorities do, and their coaches do. And so, you know, the forces of society are indeed toward do what, you know, do what I say. And so I think uh, one of the things that we, uh, you know, in similar lines, one of the things that we really tried with our children is we tried to make it explicitly okay for them to not follow things they didn't think were right in school. Um, in the U.S., you know, we, we say the Pledge of Allegiance mm-hmm. every day. You know, you stand up and put your hand over your heart and you pledge your allegiance to the flag. And I have long held the belief that a five, six, seven, eight-year-old has no capacity to know what that means. What in the hell they're yeah. pledging to, right? Yeah. They don't know half the words. They don't. And so I personally think you can't really say that that's anything but sort of a form of brainwashing. Um, it's a form of socialization to sort of conform to that ideology or that identity. And so we told our children, um, you don't have to, you can stay seated. You don't have to open your mouth. Um, and we knew that our kids are very different. You know, one was more likely to sort of, you know, push the bounds on every front and the other one wasn't. And so we, we talk about incentives. We, uh, we meant this sort of jokingly, but, but also we said it as a true pledge. We said to our one daughter, in elementary school, we'll give you a hundred dollars if you don't get sent to the principal's office all year. <laughs> and to the other shyer one who, you know, is more conformist, we said, we'll give you a hundred dollars if you get sent to the principal's <laughs> really, office. Really. Um, and so I do think as parents, uh, and it's also true as teachers, what it fundamentally I think comes down to is it's hard to do something for your children that you're not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Right. So why do a lot of parents I think, you know, tell their kids, yeah, just go along and say the Pledge of Allegiance. I think it's because they would be uncomfortable as the parents to get called out by the principal or to have their child talked about, you know, in the other parent circles. And I think in the end, you know, until we as parents, we as educators, we as the adults in the room, the managers, until we're comfortable standing out, standing alone, we're never going to teach our children to be okay doing that. Beautiful way to end today's show. But before we do... We got to mention a couple of people because guests of the show, former guests of the show, friends of the show, Ed Hess and Amy Edmondson, who are also great friends of yours. We got to give them a shout out. Hopefully we'll have both of you over here in Ireland again. Ed's writing a new book, as you know, he's at it again. I'm just about catching up on Ed's books and he goes and writes another one. Makes it always difficult as well. So maybe you want to want to say a shout out to those guys. And while you are, I have a tradition, as our audience knows, of wearing a pin. And I've left them there on the shelf. I got you one as well. So what, maybe you want to say a, a word to the guys. I'm going to grab those pins, trying to be subtle and sneak in behind the camera here, Jim. Over to you. Yeah. So, you know, Ed Hess, uh, what an incredibly wise mentor. I mean, uh, it is not an exaggeration to say I, I rely on Ed Hess daily uh, for wisdom, for inspiration, um, and just for, for true friendship. I was telling you before we started that I've been thinking recently about this notion of funeral friends, right? The, the folks you know would be at your funeral, not your Facebook friends. And uh, Ed is a funeral friend um, and just an incredibly. And yeah, if you haven't read Ed's books, you need to. And then Amy, uh, Amy Edmondson, um, you know, the really the world's authority on creating psychologically safe environments. Um, I was fortunate enough to have Amy as a 
as a doctoral advisor 20 That's years great. ago in my PhD and, and we've been friends since. And, and the beautiful thing now, uh, you know, Amy continues to try to help organizations become more psychologically safe. And often, you know, I'll, I'll end up engaging with some of the same organizations uh, who say, look, we're on this journey to be being a safer environment for learning, for innovation. Uh, and because that's an ongoing journey, we also need help encouraging and teaching our people how to be courageous in the meantime. And so, um, you know, Amy's also just such a dear friend and, and really a, a brilliant human being. From studying both Amy's work and your work, I found Amy's is like the, the why, you know, why you need psychological safety and Jim's work is the how. So how do you, Andy, how do you start with you as well? And that's such a deep part of the show that we have, Jim, as you know. So the, the book is Choosing Courage. I've covered it before in depth. We actually focused mainly on the book. And I think at the time, Jim, I wore, because uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is one of these people who chose courage and is really an outlier in society who stood up yeah. against them. So I'll let you pick which one you want out of those two. Oh. They both say I dissent. Oh, <laughs> RBG. RBG in the I'm house. taking the RBG. And by the way, uh, to make a connection, I don't know if I'd ever told you this, but um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg married Ed and his lovely wife, Kate. No way. She well, did. wow. There you go. Serendipity, my friend. Yeah. And the, la the last thing on that is like, I, I just feel... There are so many people out there and it's it's one of the pieces of what drives me. Many people ask me, you know, I'm thinking of starting a podcast. What should I do? And I go, have a why, because the why is so much more important. The why will drive your try during the days. You don't want to read the book and don't want to record the show and all those type of things. If your why is big enough, it will always trump your try and it always pull you through. And the, the real why for me is hopefully bring information to people in order to inspire them to have better lives and ultimately create better organization which makes other people have better lives and that's why it's all interlinked and it's an absolute pleasure to, to have you on the show we're going for dinner and it was an absolute pleasure having jim here to introduce to you in our first innovation show live here in the iconic offices here in dublin beautiful new offices. i hope you like them jim beautiful and uh, i want to finally thank our sponsors i Boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded finance products and services, empowering businesses to move multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. For now, adios, Jim Dietert, and thank you for coming to the studio. You bet, Cheers, man.